Welcome to the Everyday Ultra Podcast, a show designed to help you level up your training, crush your races, and ultimately become a better endurance athlete every single day. Whether you're an endurance athlete as a hobby or someone who wants to be the best in the sport, this is the show for you. I'm your host, Joe Corsion, and thank you so much for listening. Now, let's get into it. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Everyday Ultra Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Corsione, and super excited to dive into this episode. Before I do, though, I do want to uh, address a question that I get a lot, which is, what kind of training plan do I use, or do you have recommendations for training plans, or for a coach that I should invest in? So for me, whenever I make recommendations for anything, it's always based on things that I've used in my own running and my own career and what's worked really, really well for me. So for me, Um, Number one, I think having at least a training plan in your training is crucial to not only get great results and hit your goals, but also to progress safely. So many times, and even in my early career, I remember I would progress really, really quickly uh, in terms of distance and mileage and workouts, and I didn't know what the heck I was doing, and ultimately I ended up injuring myself, I ended up getting burnt out, and it just was not great at all. And it really was only until I started to follow a solid training plan, um, attuned to my specific race distance, my experience level, how many times uh, I had to really uh, work with in terms of a training block, all those kind of things, I really started to see myself making better progress a lot quicker, making myself be more healthy and not getting injured as many times or not feeling burnt out or mentally strung out by the training. And ultimately, I was able to hit my goals and enjoy my training blocks so, so much more. And on top of that too, I've even gone further and hired a coach as well. But the cool thing is, the coach that I hired is the same person who developed the training plans, which is Zach Bitter. Now, if you're familiar with Zach, and you probably are, you know that he's one of the greatest ultramarathon athletes of all time. He's the former record holder for fastest 100 mile time. Uh, he is just a wealth of knowledge when it comes to all things um, progressing and training and optimization and all those things as well. And what's super cool is he offers pre-made training plans that you can pick based on the distance you're training for, your experience level, and also how much time time that you need to train for the race, which are three important pillars that I think everybody needs to get when it comes to a training plan. Plus, you know, he's coached hundreds and hundreds of athletes as well. So being able to take all that experience from not only his own racing, but also his experience of coaching others, he's able to really fine tune an amazing training plan for you to help hit your goals, whether it's a 5k or whether it's a hundred miles, he has a plan for you. And if you want to go even deeper, you can actually hire him as a personalized coach where he's going to take a plan and personalize it to your lifestyle. So that includes your schedule, your stress levels, your sleep levels, your lifestyle, your goals, everything else like that, he goes even further and personalizes it in a personalized plan and also offers calls where you can hop on with him on a routine basis to go over your training, answer your questions, and ultimately get the coaching you need. That's the package that I've used with Zach over the past year and a half, and I've seen incredible results with him uh, going from pretty much an average and mediocre runner to placing top 10 male at Javelin 100, which was one of the most stacked events last year on the ultra running circuit. So if you want to make great progress, if you want to have an awesome training plan or if you're looking for an amazing coach, I cannot recommend Zach even more than I already do. He is just amazing to uh, work with and just an awesome, awesome coach and uh, person to get a training plan from. So if you're interested in the training plans, go to the, the show notes and go to the link in there, which is zachbitter.com slash training hyphen plans, or you can go to his coaching options at zachbitter.com slash coaching. Again, go to the show notes, check it out, get Zach's plan for your next uh, ultra or hire him as a coach. And I promise you will not be disappointed my friends. All right. Thank you so much again for listening. Appreciate you a ton. Now let's dive into this amazing episode here. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Everyday Ultra Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Corsione, and I'm super, super pumped for this episode because this is someone I've been following along for a while, and she's always impressed me by not just how she crushes 200 milers, but she also is super, super impressive in the areas, even just outside of 200 miles, whether it's anywhere from a 50K, 100K, 50 milers, very versatile, but really she's made a name for herself in the 200 uh, 
uh, space as most recently completing her fifth Bigfoot 200, nabbing the course record and coming in first place female on that as well. She's also won the Tahoe 200, had a podium finish at Cocodona earlier this year as well. And like I said, tons of wins, podium finishes, top 10 finishes all across different distances from 50K to even a 326 miler, which is super cool. So I'm super excited to have on the one, the only Mika Thews to the Everyday Ultra Podcast. Mika, thank you so much for coming on and congrats again on your epic Bigfoot win. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. So... Absolutely. And I'm excited to have you here too. Like I said, long time coming. We were, were talking about earlier how I would have had you on in the Cocodona preview, but you signed up like at the most last minute possible, which was an awesome move. So excited to, to connect with you here. And definitely want to talk about Bigfoot and some of like your recent races and a little bit of insight on that. But before we do, like, tell us a little bit about like your background and how you got into this because you have such an extensive you know, race resume and so many things you've done. How did you get into this sport? Um, yeah. So actually my mom's always been a runner. And so like as a kid, you know, she dragged us to some local races and I hated running. I did like two years of track in like middle and high school. And I was like, just very slow and not very good. <laughs> so uh, I actually went to art school. And when I was at art school, of course, I got into running, which like was the smallest little run club as you can imagine. But uh, yeah, I just started running to get into shape. And uh, after I started running within the first year, I had signed up for my first marathon and then did a couple more marathons. And, you know, as I was like, oh, well, you know, I could try and get faster and qualify for Boston, or I could just double it. (laughs) And so that was my first uh, ultra was a 50 miler. It just kind of all snowballed from there did a hundred the year later. And then I did my first 50 miler in 2012. And then in 2015 was my first 200. So just kind of jumped right up. Oh my gosh. That's so awesome. And it's so cool to see you kind of had that like two prong approach. You're like, should I just get faster and just qualify for Boston or should I go bigger? And you not only went double that, but you went, you know, four times it with going into the two hundreds and like, that's been kind of an area you've been like known for and really like making a name for yourself, which is super cool. Like what specifically intrigued you about these longer distances, especially the 200 mile race. Cause when you got into the sport, I mean, you did the first big foot ever. It was very new kind of thing very uncertain right now it's getting a little bit more popularized a little bit more mainstream but like what drew you to want to really go into these really really long races yeah I mean I could talk all day about the first year of Bigfoot it was like so small and old school feel there were like 60 finishers maybe I think just under 60 it was like tiny little thing and uh I was intrigued by just trying to see if I could do the 200 when I had heard about them and the only ones back then were Tahoe and Bigfoot in its first year and Tahoe the high point was like topped out at 10 and Bigfoot tops out at like six and I was coming from Michigan so I was like may as well choose the one with less altitude even though it had like 10,000 feet more climbing but uh once I got there everyone like was so friendly and like I met so many people I'm still friends with and the community was just already like forming it was so awesome that I like right when I finished that one even though I had like like it was a rough race for sure but I knew I had to come back and that I wanted to keep keep doing them because everyone out there was just so friendly and so awesome and encouraging and it was already the community was already starting to form that's awesome. Yeah. And then there was that recent picture after this Bigfoot with you with other people holding up the five, like on the, the five Bigfoot finishers, which I thought was super, super cool. And that first Bigfoot, that was your first 200 miler, correct? Yeah. That and that's was. like, that's a crazy, like first, like experience, especially like I can imagine that first year of Bigfoot and just knowing how crazy that race is now to like be in this kind of like primitive state. I mean, especially even beforehand, like with your ultra sign up here, 50 miler, 50 miler, hundred miler did Mohican too. So, I mean, this woman was definitely a big step up, not just in mileage, but just experience wise. Was it like something about that kind of grittiness that like thing, I guess like what, 
what drives you to maybe those like really extra tough challenges or tough courses? Cause that's, I mean, even today, Bigfoot's known as probably the gnarliest 200 miler out there. Um, what drives you to that gnarliness? And I see your head kind of like going like, eh, like any uh, different opinions on that one? No, I mean, it's definitely, it's the most remote of all the 200s I've done. Um, there's like, there's nothing like I was aid station captain last year for one of the aid stations and literally they drop off all the supplies in like this dirt patch on the side of a road and you make the aid station. It's like every aid station is like in the middle of the woods, you know, like Tahoe, some of them are in like ski lodges or like even at Cocodona, there's some that are indoors, but there's no indoors to be had at Bigfoot. You know, it's, it's so remote and so rugged. And there's something about being that removed from everything that really feels like you're just, out in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of other people that want to be out in the middle of nowhere. And that really just, I think, um, is a magical experience. And it's, yeah, I don't know. And I, I really do think that um, anyone is capable of doing a 200, right? It's just like a little bit of training and, you know, having the right mindset. And I think most people would be surprised at what they could accomplish if they just kind of go for it and jump right in. And, you know, when races are really expensive, you're like, well, I paid for this, you know, I can't drop out, just keep pushing, you know, when you don't give yourself that option to be like, oh, I'm tired, or I kind of heard I'm going to drop like, when you're just like, nope, got to finish, then uh, you'll be surprised by what you can push through. Because none of us knew what we were doing that first year, everyone hit so many blisters, like people were getting food poisoning, because food was undercooked like people didn't have trackers some people like two people got lost for like one guy for half a day one guy for like a full day it was nuts and like everyone still had a great time so that's awesome it's like usually like the most chaotic memories can be the best kind of memories and the ones that have you keep coming back and everything like that which is super super cool and i love that you touch on you know the thing where it's like if you show up you can surprise yourself to see what you can do and i'm, I'm curious like when, how does that kind of apply to you and the reason why i ask because I mean, you're really, really talented. And I know like you've talked about in the past how, you know, you've wanted to win certain races and you have that kind of competitive nature to it. Like, was that kind of always something that you had or something that you developed or something that you kind of shoot for? Like, talk to me a little bit more about that. Um, Definitely early on it wasn't. I was just, you know, as anyone gets in, you know, you just kind of shoot for the finish. And when you're doing your first couple hundred miles, you're like, oh, well, you know, I should shoot for, shoot for sub 24 is what like everyone goes after. But um, definitely as I've gotten a little faster, I've definitely in the last like two years sort of changed my mindset about competing and like how to, you know, because a lot of times, I, I don't know, especially as like a female runner, you're kind of like, oh, I'll take it easy and then I can come from behind and you know, I can always catch up later kind of a thing. But recently, I've kind of changed it. Um, you know, talking to some of my friends where it's like, you know, if you know what you're capable of, and you know, like what you can maintain, like, just go out at, at that. And like, don't worry if other people are like, oh, that's too fast, you might blow up. Like, you'll never know how fast you can end up running if you don't just kind of <laughs> shoot for it. So if you end up in first place 10 miles into the race, like, you know, it doesn't mean necessarily that you'll blow up. You might, but you might be able to keep it. So you never know. I love that. Yeah. And with Bigfoot, I mean, you were pretty much like up there leading for the females for majority of the race, if not all of it. I, I was out there on the course pacing as well. So there were some spots where I didn't have, you oh, know, you the, the tracking. But I remember seeing you coming into aid stations, just like running pretty strong, like throughout the race and stuff like that. So it was super cool to see. So I'm, I'm curious for you, like when you're kind of in that mode and this kind of maybe plays in the mindset thing, and maybe you can talk about like Bigfoot too, but like, what, what do you do to keep yourself like moving strong? Right. Because it eventually gets hard, right. You've been in these races where it, it there's a lot of adversity that can come at you in 200 miles, but maybe a Bigfoot, like what, what drove you to be at that front of the pack and keep you pushing? Like maybe when things weren't going, if, if they didn't go the right way at some certain parts throughout the race. Yeah, I mean, I definitely had low moments. Everyone does. Um, you know, I was running up there with uh, Killian Corinth, and yeah. uh, he was a great help. We were kind of like, it's kind of crazy, right? Because we, 
I did. I was first female by, after Windy Ridge. So like by mile 30, I was in front. And then I just ran with Killian and literally from mile like 50 to the finish line, we were the only people we saw in the race. Like Ryan was too far ahead of us. We never saw him and nobody like fourth place never caught up to us. So it was just us passing back and forth and like <laughs> run, we ran together for a bit. And so I think running together definitely helped uh, push me a bit because I was like, didn't necessarily think I'd be able to hold on to him because he had some big goals. Um, and I was like, oh, well, I'll just see how long I can hang on to him and just kind of keep him in my sights. And uh, it ended up being the entire race because he would get ahead of me on like some of the climbs, but uh, I was a little bit stronger on the downhill. So I'd like catch back up to him. And then just knowing that like the other women were behind me, like I had no idea. I don't, I had a crew for the first time out at Bigfoot and uh, first time. Pace. yeah. And it was the first time I actually had people come out to pace me. I've had pacers, but they're kind of been like super last minute friends that have just been around. Um, so like, I don't, but I don't like, I don't necessarily like knowing. So like, I had no idea where anyone was during the entire race. So I was like, it wasn't until one of the out and backs that I realized I was at least an hour ahead of Eliza. <laughs> <laughs> But until then, I had like I they could have been like, you know, within an hour of me and I wouldn't have known. So it was just like mentally not knowing you're just like can't slow down because I got to maintain this. And, you know, I went in planning to chase the course record and was hopeful um, that I could maybe get it. And so I knew I was ahead of schedule for my predicted times into the aid stations. So I was just trying to, like, maintain kind of a buffer on that. And at one point, I think I fell down to, like, only two hours ahead of my, like, 65-hour projection. But then I was able to make it back up, which was sort of a – I didn't realize how far ahead of the record I was until I was actually on the road running in. And I, I actually – that was the first time I looked at my watch, and I was like, wait, how – what's the time? Oh my, so I have a million questions just to follow up from that. That is like so awesome. Like from the first time having a crew to, to being like not looking at the watch throughout, like so much to unpack on there. And it's so, so I love the mindset of like wanting to go for it and wanting to, to be out on top and keep pushing it. Cause I think that's the thing that makes the sport so awesome is like finding out what you're capable of. And I love that mindset that you have out there too. And it's something that I think a lot of people know you for as well, which is like, you know, have, have uh, you having fans like along the way, including myself, um, which is super cool to see your performance out there, but to kind of go on some of the specifics there. So I know you mentioned like looking at your watch for the first time on that road. Is that something just to like a mental thing that you do like on purpose to help yourself? Like, tell me a little bit more about that. Cause I fall in the camp. Like I'm always looking at my watch and wondering if it does like more harm than good. So curious to hear your approach on that. Yeah. I'm not super big on um, technology in general. I started wearing a watch for the first time when I started doing heart rate based training uh, last year. And so now I'm like used to it, but I only have it turned to my heart rate screen. I don't like knowing anything else. Oh, wow. Um, I was, I checked at the aid stations just to know like how far ahead of my projected times I was, but I hadn't looked at my watch since click attack by the time we got to the road at the end. At that point I was just trying to stay ahead of Killian, but yeah, mentally it definitely like, I'm good at like kind of, zoning out and dialing in and just focusing on what I'm doing. And I think looking at the watch too much for me, like gets me out of that mindset. And then I, then you're like counting down the miles and with the two hundreds, you can't be like counting down the miles, but I just race a station to a station. I think that's how most people break it down and like looking at the watch and getting frustrated. Like it doesn't help anything to get frustrated. So you just kind of embrace it and be like, I'll get there when I get there. And I'm just going to focus on the trail and not worry about the time, not worry about the distance. You know, I know it'll pop up eventually and just, yeah, I get, I can get really frustrated if I'm like, what do you mean? I only made it like two miles. Like, I don't like, I don't like knowing any of that. So I don't look at it until I actually get to the aid station. That's so cool. And yeah, especially with some of those parts in the Bigfoot course, right? Like that, uh, the, that one, I forgot what the section is called, but the one with that like 7,000 foot climb, basically the one that's just straight up, like even that, like you're moving yeah, a little slow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like, 
looking at even just that number on the watch, especially in the 200, whether it's like 165 or 170, I can totally see how that can play a little bit of mind tricks. And I love how you just center it all on just moving forward and just getting aid station to aid station and just enjoying the experience and being out there, which is super, super cool. I know you mentioned too, having your heart rate on there. Um, and you mentioned like doing some heart rate training. So in the middle of a race, are you like monitoring your heart rate, kind of using that as a gauge or is it more just kind of there and just checking in? Like, tell me a little bit about that. Cause that's uh super interesting. Yeah, actually I wore it for, I, I can only wear it for so long before it starts to really bother me. So <laughs> I think at Cocodona, I ripped it off at like mile 160 at Sedona. And at Bigfoot, I think I ripped it off at 140 and was like, oh, wow. just done with it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I just like to have a gauge to just see how hard I'm working. Cause you know, you never want to be pushing like super, super hard, but, or like just, I've noticed that my heart rate's super affected by like temperature. And mm-hmm. so like just not going too crazy when I'm the hot sections um, has been helpful, but I was definitely a little high on that first day. Um, but it just, yeah, just like a general gauge. I don't put too much stock in it at races. I mean, when I do the shorter races, obviously my heart rate's like ridiculously high. It's not like training, but. Um, it's just, yeah, a good like check-in and it like takes your mind off since I don't like wearing a watch. It's like something that I can look at. That's not like time or distance or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And that's like cool to see that you ripped it off at like certain points. Cause you were like, Hey, this is just not working for me. And like, I think it can be so easy, like with watches to just feel like we have to keep it on the entire time or feel like we have to be married to the thing. So I love the approach of saying like, Hey, if it's just not working for me, I'm just going to take it off and and just keep going, which is super cool. I I definitely want to touch a little bit more on like your Bigfoot strategies, but even before that with the heart rate training, like what got you intrigued to try that out in training? Was it like more just to make sure you're in like the intensity zones that you need to be? And like, I mean, you put in some awesome training, like big fan of your Strava, just kind of going through like all your training and everything. And so, but what got you intrigued on that heart rate training specifically? Cause I know you mentioned it's relatively new for you. Yeah. So actually I've been self-coached like pretty much my entire running career. Um, but last year I hired a coach for the first time, um, after reading the uphill athlete book, training for the uphill athlete, great book. Yeah. Which is like, talks all about heart rate. And I was like, wow, this sounds really awesome. And so actually I uh, had, my coach kind of used that approach. Um, it was Luke Nelson. He's with Evoke Endurance now, but he mm-hmm. was super awesome. And he just got me onto like time-based heart rate training. And that made just, that was going into Tahoe last year. And that was like the fastest I've ever been. <laughs> so wow. it made like a huge difference. And uh, so I'm, I'm definitely a convert at this point. So I wear my little heart rate strap every run, even though I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah, the training has been very different and it's just kind of like building up. I mean, if you've read the book, right? Like you're just trying to kind of um, get your aerobic speed as fast as possible so you can be running in the aerobic zone, um, but be running pretty quick. And so your body can recover from it. And so that's, and, you know, I've been running so long without a watch that I'm pretty good at um, like perceived effort and just running based on feel, which is really what I do. I mean, I use heart rate to kind of check in, but I usually know about what my heart rate is based on how hard I'm working, Mm. unless it's like particularly hot or something like that, which messes with your heart rate a bit. But just so like, I definitely recommend, you know, there's a lot of people that are so glued to their watches and their heart rate and their paces. And I think it's really helpful to run sometimes without a watch and just really get dialed in like with your body and know like perceived effort and to be able to tell like what is hard and what is easy without any kind of data feedback and just know the feeling. Um, And to then pair that with a watch, I think can be really helpful, but I feel like more people should maybe be a little less focused on that and just more focused on like, this is what easy feels like and this is what hard feels like. And I think that can be helpful to kind of, gauge especially when you get to these longer races um and so when you're tired and you know on day four you still kind of can gauge where you're at 
Yeah. And that is such an awesome point. Like, especially, I think it's, it's a great, great piece of advice in the world where we're so connected to technology and data and like, I mean, Strava and everything like that, right? It's it's good to disconnect a little bit and just get back to who we are and like what we're feeling and what those body like kind of things are. Like, has that allowed you like getting more in touch with just knowing how your body reacts to things to like troubleshoot certain things in a 200? Because we were kind of talking about before, like with a 200, so many variables that are play, like there's, you know, the sleep element, there's a lot more like margin for error for like things to just kind of pop up. Has that allowed you to kind of be more in tune to troubleshoot things as they come up like as you're going through these 200 mile races like whether things are popping up like going on in your mind body anything like that yeah I definitely think it has because like that well so like I didn't really bonk this year but my hardest section was also the quartz ridge climb Mm. I did it in like the heat of the day and so like I was really overheating and so I think I said it my earlier like you know I was uh I had to lay like five times with just my head in a stream trying to cool off and like keep trying to get my temperature down because I could just feel I was working way too hard for what I should have been. And um, yeah, you can kind of tell like when you're maybe low on calories and low on um, low on hydration and electrolytes. I definitely think just being really in tune with your body because like that's the thing is like most of the time, like, and it's different for everyone. Like sleep is what everyone always has questions about. Oh, how do you sleep? What's your sleep strategy and all that. But (laughs) most of the time when you're tired, you could just eat more and that'll usually perk you up. So like knowing when you actually need a nap versus when you just need to be eating like constantly, like every, you know, half hour, hour, just eat something that can really make you a lot less tired and you don't actually need as much sleep as you think you might. Yeah. Uh, I love that you touched on that so much because yeah, like the sleep question with these 200s is like always, and I've never done one personally, but I just know just kind of being in the community and seeing what a lot of people ask and listen to people who do 200s. It's always like sleep, sleep, sleep. And I love that you touch on. Sometimes it might not be sleep. It might just be, you need to eat and fuel or anything like that. Um, and did you sleep at all during Bigfoot? Like I don't know. I haven't heard, but I've heard like some people like weren't sleeping. Like, did you sleep at all during this year's Bigfoot at all? I slept for 10 minutes. Got a solid 10 minute nap. Yeah. yeah. I laid down for uh, another half hour. The first night I shut my eyes for 10 minutes, but I didn't fall asleep just to kind of help reset my vision. And then the second night I was hoping to sleep and I laid, I like shut my eyes for 20 minutes at the aid station and I didn't sleep at all. So, uh, I, in that following section, I took a dirt nap and I actually passed out for like 10 minutes and that was like super rejuvenating. Um, and same thing at Tahoe last year, I slept for 10 minutes in a porta potty in inclined village in a porta potty. Oh my gosh. Yeah. They're very clean in inclined village. It's a very fancy uh, neighborhood. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Cause I can imagine the porta potties there are probably like cleaner than most too. So not, not a bad spot to camp out and nap. <laughs> Yeah, but like it, it's really based on, and this is something I learned at Cocodona where I like totally screwed up my sleep. But um, it's really based on how long you're going to be out there, right? So like if you're going to be finishing in about sixty hours, ten minutes of sleep is fine for the race. But if you're out there for seventy plus hours, you definitely need more to take more sleep, um, and uh, maybe even plan it out a little, a little more strictly. Mm-hmm. Do you like also supplement with caffeine at all? Or are you like more just natural, just kind of keep it going? Like what, what's your, no, 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 I take caffeine. <laughs> I was the same. It's like, if you didn't, I'd be like, Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, no, I, you know, I was a little bummed at Bigfoot this year. They usually have Mountain Dew. They didn't have any, I usually chug cups of Mountain Dew, but, uh, I had some emergency caffeine pills on me. So I was popping a couple of those for sure. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, hopefully next year they can hook it up with a Mountain Dew or in 2025 when uh, you do it next for sure. Um, But in terms of like, like I wanted to kind of touch on the mental side because like sleep obviously like plays with mental stuff. And you were talking about like the mental side and locking that in, in these races. So like for you, I know we kind of talked a little bit about you basically just being locked in, moving one foot in front of the other, but like 
like, I'd love for you to go deeper on that. Like what kind of goes through your mind in these races where, you know, you want to be out on top or you want to do your very best, or you really need to dig deep, like when things, cause I know, I remember you mentioning at Cocodona, there was a lot of challenges you were facing. There was some low points here at Bigfoot too. So like for you, like what's your like mental kind of game plan to help you push these, these things? Cause you do have strong finishes. Like even at Cocodona, like you, even though you mentioned you battled some things still ended up on the podium, had an impressive race here too with some low points that you mentioned like how do you mentally like grapple those challenges as they come up yeah um so between aid stations i really just try and make it a race from aid station to aid station so you're always just kind of trying to get into the aid station and when i hit the aid station you know you're always before you get in you have your list of like things you need to do so if you're really organized and you know exactly what needs to happen when you get in And then you're just like hit all your little points and then you just get out as fast as you can. You like don't even give yourself time to think. So Mm. you're not just like hanging out, sitting around. You're just like in and out. That's how Bigfoot was this year for me. So it was just like, you know, between eight stations, you're just like, okay, I just got to get to the eight station. Then when you're in the eight station, you're just like, I got to get out as fast as possible. And so (laughs) you cut down a lot on the like the dead time. Um, and that, so like, yeah, if you're trying to move fast, I think that's a pretty good strategy. And then in terms of just battling the low spots, I mean, you know, just got to keep the perspective, like, right. Like if you're in a, like two years ago at Bigfoot in 2021, the course was just in terrible shape and there were so many blowdowns and down trees that like were a nightmare to get through. And some people were getting really frustrated. Right. But if you can just be like, well, you know, everyone else has to go through these two, you know, like if I like if I have to slow down for this, everyone else has to slow down for this. So like not getting frustrated by like when you're hitting your low point because everyone hits low points. And so even when you hit the low point, you know, don't get discouraged like, oh, I'm so far off my pace. Oh, you know, who's ever going to catch up to me or I'm going to fall back so far. It's like, yeah, you might have a low point, but, you know, you're going to have a high point. And, you know, everyone's going to be battling those highs and lows. So just, yeah, not getting frustrated when you are in that that low point, which can definitely be hard. But then, you know, just focusing on getting into the aid station, right? And like, oh, I can just recover at the aid station is a good, mm-hmm. that's kind of how I look at it. I, I love that perspective so much because so many times it can be easy to like, go slow or face something and think like we get so hard on ourselves because we think like, Oh man, like I stink. Like this is all like a product of me being slow. But to your point, like if everybody's climbing over the same tree, if everyone's dealing with the same weather, like everything like that, like everyone's dealing with it. And sometimes like we can think like we're the only ones being affected by it, like in, in kind of like our own world. But when we say, Hey, everyone's kind of doing it almost like levels a mental playing field and kind of just makes it realize like, Hey, like this is just the reality of how the race is. And so I love that perspective. I think that's a, a super cool, like a uh, thing to just keep in mind, you know, when we're moving forward in these kind of ultras, which is su- super, super cool for sure. I know also too, you touched base on you know, when you were going back and forth with Killian, you didn't really see too many other people like throughout the race. Are there times like where maybe that, like, are you someone who thrives maybe in that being alone out there? Or do you like to be around people? And if so, how do you deal with maybe that solitude? Like for me, I'm super extroverted. I love being around people. Some of my most darkest moments for me is like when I'm like alone in the dark in some of these ultras. So I'm curious, like how, how do you approach that? And, and is that something that, you know, gets to you or that you have to manage? Like, I'd love to hear that. Yeah. I mean, anyone that I've run with will tell you, I am very chatty and will not shut up if I start (laughs) running with someone So I love finding people to run with. That's actually like one of my favorite things. And, you know, having someone like especially another racer out there with you, you know, when you are going through those tough sections and you're just like, isn't this ridiculous? Like it just makes it so much better because like they're going through it and you're going through it and you're just looking at each other like, can you believe there's another tree we have to go over? Um, so I definitely, I love being out there and I'll chat with anybody on the trail and, you know, I'm sure Killian got sick of me at one point as I'm just like chatting and chatting and, you know, um, and like, yeah, Cocodona, right. I think, uh, everyone knew I was running with Mike and (laughs) we stayed together for like a hundred and 
what was that like 180 miles we did something ridiculous so I I definitely love finding people and it can definitely be hard you know being out there like at the front when everyone's so strung out and not having anyone to run with but you know I am someone that loves listening to music so I definitely Mm -hmm. have my uh iPods and headphones and uh it's funny like I always have like usually like the second day I get really sick of music. And so I'll, I have a couple podcasts saved because I just want to hear someone else talking. And so like, especially at Bigfoot, I love like some of like the spookier podcasts, you know, when you're out there in the dark by yourself and you're like listening to like lore and it's all about like spooky in the woods by yourself. And you're like kind of looking around as you're (laughs) running. You don't get like creeped out. I feel like that would like trigger hallucinations in me. Like talk about like, ghosts and stuff. Like I feel like I'd I'd start like manifesting it in my vision. <laughs> yeah, no, I just think it, you know, it makes it more fun. It really like sets the sets the vibe for like Pacific Northwest and like dark trees and looking for Bigfoot. So I mean I enjoy it. I just kinda kind of just uh buy into the whole aura it creates. <laughs> That's awesome. And it's like a great way to have fun with it, right? Like, you know, in in something that's so hard, like finding ways to make it fun and just enjoyable and just like a unique experience, I think is a skill in itself, right? Because if we just kind of take it as this hard thing, then it is that hard thing. But if you look at it, like, let me have some fun with it. Let me like make this a spooky adventure. Like, especially in those moments, like when it's just you, cause it can be like easy to have it fun with someone else. But I love that approach to, to kind of shape your mind, like in those moments when you're just by yourself, I think it's awesome. Yeah. And just like even taking moments, you know, during the race to just pause and like, you know, all the views, like, I mean, pretty much every 200, there's some amazing view and to just be able to pause from and then realize like, this is gorgeous. I'm out here. Like, people don't come out here and like, I'm so lucky that I get to be out here and see this and it's amazing. And, you know, just using that, just the, the joy and the awe of the environment to, you know, help keep your mood up because a lot of, you know, running the two hundreds is like managing your mood, which is why, like, you know, I said about being low on calories, right? Like when I'm starting to get in a bad mood, I'm like, Oh, I need to eat. Cause it's typically that or, you know, just taking a moment for some perspective to be like, this is amazing out here. And I get to be out here. If you're with someone, just be like, man, isn't this great? Like, we're having such a good time. (laughs) It's fun being out here with you, (laughs) you know, whoever you're with. I love that. uh, This adventure that we're on, you know. So good. Like that is so, so good, especially because I think in a course like Bigfoot, there are a lot of those moments that like are so beautiful, but it can also be like treacherous, like that Pompey Peak, like out and back, like it's like so late in the race, like you're kind of climbing up like that last part, but the view at the top is so beautiful. I mean, like you got uh, St. Helens and Rainier just basically like hand in hand, which is so cool. And it's like one of those things where it's like, okay, like we can you know, curse out this climb or we can enjoy this view, like, which is super cool. So I love that perspective. And I love how you talk about like these 200s are very much like a mood management thing because man, like so much can go up and down in there. And I think that's a important skill to have, um, kind of relating to that. And I'm wondering if it like helps with the mood stuff, but you mentioned this is your first race with a crew too. Like, is that something now you're sold on and going to be doing more so at races? Like, I guess maybe first I'd love to hear like, what was your kind of thought process on like, this is going to be the first race I'm using a crew. Like, like, tell me about that. I think that's super cool. Yeah. Um, I've had crews at races in the past. This was the first time I had anyone out at Bigfoot. Ooh, it's gotcha. so hard to crew. Um, I did have somebody crew me a friend, um, at Tahoe last year, Oh, gotcha. a little bit. Um, and early on in my race career, my mom used to come with me to all my <laughs> ultras. Oh, and so she's awesome. kind of like the crew, but, um, yeah, it kind of just worked out this year where actually, so my crew was a friend of mine from Colorado and then my mom. And Aww. so it was the first time my mom was going to be out at Bigfoot. And so I was just super excited to have her out there. And I was like my fifth, fifth finish. And I'd always wanted her to, you know, come out and see some, what it looked like out there and just experience it. Um, and you know, she's a trail runner too. She actually ran her first hundred um in 2021 and i paced her at that so i mean she's an awesome runner as well but yeah knowing she was out there was really really helpful you know i'm 
pretty comfortable not being crewed. Um, it definitely helps when you have a crew that like knows what they're doing to like save a little bit of time. But I also think people should attempt races. Like there's some people are so very dependent on it, like Mm -hmm. in the States and like crews and pacers and everybody. And to be able to manage it yourself, I think is a super valuable skill because you can, your crew can always miss you. And to just know like what you need and how to take care of yourself is super valuable. And like, like, um, if you're racing like out in Europe, right, they don't allow pacers and even crewing is much more limited. And so I think like having a crew was super awesome. And it was really nice that I had some people out there this year. And it definitely made me more excited to get into the aid stations to see them. But I think I think I do think some people are a little too dependent on it where they're like, oh, I could have never done this without my crew or I would have never been able to do this without a pacer. And it's like, you know, maybe they're just being nice, but I really do think that everyone should be able to manage themselves without that, you know, and not, you know, have everything all laid out and like everyone jump on them and do everything for them. Like you should be able to take care of your own feet. You know, you should be able to troubleshoot your own eating and drinking hydration issues and everything like that. Yeah. That is such a great point because I mean, even there was an instance where we missed our runner, especially like a Bigfoot. like it's pretty easy to miss your runner at some of these aid stations, just given the sheer amount of like driving. Like I said, like we missed our runner at one point too. And it's a, yeah, I think that's like a valuable skill to have just in case, like who, who knows, even if, even if it is an easy race to crew, what if they get a flat tire or someone gets sick, like, it's a, I never thought of that to have like, Hey, like I should at least have a backup plan in case there's a worst case scenario that something happens. That's super genius. Yeah. And I mean, like I, I've done races where I've, you know, had a person or a crew, but I never counted on them. So like, I've, Mm. I like, they've missed me and I've like, just been like, that's fine. Like I already know what I'm doing. Right. And some people can be so thrown off by that or like their crew has all of their stuff so they don't even have a drop bag so like they have to wait for like a half hour to see if their crew's going to show up and then you lose all that time and like that's why like you should always have drop bags with essentials or all the essentials on you because like you said you never know what could happen and I've definitely seen people been like thrown into a frenzy because of it and like kind of lost and it's you know you always need to have that backup plan where like if I was running this without a crew, what would I do? And what would I need in my drop bags just in case? And, you know, the crew can always set up things from your drop bag. So I think people that don't necessarily pack drop bags are maybe (laughs) taking a big risk. Yeah. Wow. So I've never done a 200 miler, but I wouldn't even thought of having just a drop bag there just in case. Like that is such a genius move because a lot of times it's like, Oh, it's either crew or drop bag, but having both is is like basically like insurance because god forbid something happens to your crew and they can't make it like at least you have this drop bag here with the stuff you need like whether it is an extra pair of shoes like anything that you know could be essential on there like that is a that's a pro move right there i think that's awesome yeah socks calories like anything you could need right like change of clothes because yeah i I mean even at at bigfoot i think um i think it was killian like his crew got lost and he ended up not having them at one of the aid stations and he had to leave because he like wait tried waiting for like half an hour for them to show up and they just never showed up so and I don't think he had extra drop bags I mean he was fine Mm -hmm. he was able to make it work but you know if you are super dependent if they have like your calories that you're planning on taking then that's like a huge risk Um, especially at a race like Bigfoot which is so remote and people can get lost get flats you know drive their car into a ditch (laughs) It, and for those listening who haven't been out there, like it is, she is hundred percent accurate in some of these roads. Like we, we were crewing around, like driving some of these places. And I was like, this is so gnarly. Like, this is crazy. Like even the person I was crewing with, like even said like one year, like someone like drove off like that, uh, like highway, like off of like, like coming from Windy Ridge, like it's like super sketchy. So like to, I don't want to understate like the, the probability of these things happening. Cause it is, that race is a gnarly, gnarly crew race. I can see why, you know, you uh, waited, you know, four races to ask someone to do it because it's a beast for sure. Yeah. And like every year a crew, there's like some crew that either, yeah, goes in, goes off the road, runs out of gas, pops a tire. Like it's, 
every year it happens to one of the crews at least. So yeah, it's super, super common. I mean, you know, crewing a race like Tahoe is like so much easier, right? Cause you're basically just driving around on that highway and you don't have quite as much to worry about, but um, yeah, at a race like Bigfoot, that's so rugged and remote. I mean, you don't want to take any chances. Yeah. And I've sure. driven a little bit on those roads, like when I was aid station captain. So I got, I got a taste of it myself and it was definitely a lot uh, gnarlier than I would have thought even so for sure yeah it is uh someone like uh told me about that going into the race who's done it before they were like they're like oh like if you're crewing and pacing like buckle up and i was like oh like it'll be fine you know because i've crewed coca dona and like all this other stuff and then came out to there and i was like whoa this is like crewing level boss level here this is uh really insane stuff which is just super crazy last last kind of thing on bigfoot before i kind of want to talk about your upcoming race which is just very very uh closely among us as of this recording which is just so so cool um but you finish bigfoot come in you win you get the course record um what was like your biggest lesson that you've learned like over this fifth running of bigfoot that maybe like was something new to you or if there was anything but i i I love how reflective you are of like the different kind of you know things in your career that have kind of helped you along the way so with this specific win like what is maybe some takeaways or a lesson that you got from it that you know you really learned throughout your fifth bigfoot experience Yeah, I'd say, you know, this year, you know, everything just ended up working out pretty well. And, you know, a lot of times, like, you know, you can make whatever plans you want to, but it's always just a a learning experience and adapting. So like the most important thing for sure in doing the 200s is just the ability to adapt Mm because, you know, you can have, you know, all your time set out for whatever hour finish you think you might hit, but it all like once you start the race it all goes out the window and so just rolling being able to roll with the punches I think is super valuable and I learned that actually maybe a little bit more in my last Bigfoot in 2021 where it was just such a slow year everyone was running like I think Mike McKnight was even like eight hours slower than his course record time it was just the course was in rough shape it was super hot um a lot of runners were having trouble in that first section around Mount St. Helens and So that I think is definitely one of the most valuable lessons just to be able to adapt um, and not be too locked into any one plan because it's always going to change. The one thing you know is everything's always going to change. Um, And so, yeah, even when I knew about how much time I had, uh, you know, above my projected times, like it kept changing and it was just, you know, managing myself and, you know, your own expectations and, um, other than that, yeah, I mean, the biggest difference from this year versus previous Bigfoots has just been that mindset of going out at, you know, a sustainable speed that, you know, you know is good for yourself and then just trying to hang on and not being worried about going out, like, not being worried about what anyone might say with how fast you go out, you know. If you think that you can do it, then, you know, shoot for it. Because if you never try, then you'll never know what you're capable of. So, like, you know, it's not to be too um, too conservative and just too worried about it. I mean, if you think you can do it, go for it. And, you know, if you end up blowing up a bit, then that's a lesson to be learned. But it's um, it's not bad to try. And I think everyone should just maybe try a little bit, try a little bit if they think they're capable of it. So good. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate that because I think in the world of, of ultra running right now, like it's, it's almost becoming cliche to be like, start slow and finish strong. Um, but, uh, and you even mentioned this on like the last podcast interview you were on too. It's like, I think we're starting to see a shift of like, you know, taking risks and people going out and pushing like, um, and like really just, you know, taking it full throttle in the beginning and just trying to manage it and sure that might lead to a blow up but like to your point like i love how you said earlier on like just show yourself like what you can do and like you you might surprise yourself along the way so love that approach and i also love how you mentioned like the only thing that we do know is that things will change and 
I think a thing that can screw us up, not even just in an ultra in life is we have a plan and it deviates and like our brain just kind of freaks out a little bit. But if we make a piece that like things are going to change, like that, that makes it so much easier. And it shows just not only in the, in the way you race, but the way you think about different strategies as we kind of gone through like the drop bags and the nutrition and the crew and everything like that. So like you definitely live it and, and your results like show with it, which is super, super cool. And speaking about races, you have another one coming up very, very shortly, not just another race, but another 200 miler. So tell us a little bit about that. And yeah, it, it's when I heard that you were doing this race too, I was like, my gosh, like this is incredible. So, so tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. It's a first year race called the divide 200 up in Canada. I think what they say, it's like Western Canada's first 200 miler. I think it's the first at like non loop two. I'm, I think it's the first non loop 200 in Canada. So, I mean, it's by uh, Sinister Sports, and I've never done one of their races, but I've heard good things. So I'm pretty excited to go out there. It's in the Canadian Rockies, which should be exciting. I haven't gotten to get up there at all. Um, The only thing I'm very worried about is grizzly bears (laughs) because they do have them. But, uh, yeah, I think think it's about similar. You know, everything's in um, metric units, so... You know, you got to kind of translate, but it's about the same amount of climbing as Bigfoot, maybe a couple thousand feet less, but should be exciting race. And I, you know, inaugural years for any race is always, I, they're my favorite. I love doing them because there's always so many things that go wrong and, you know, you get the best stories from those races. Like the first year of Cocodona was a bit of a mess. I think even uh, some of the race directors will admit to that but it because it's a learning experience and like just being able to be a part of that first year is always pretty exciting so i'm really stoked that i get to uh run it this year yeah that's so cool that you were inaugural year bigfoot and mentioned all things the inaugural year cocodona everybody knows the infamous uh bradshaws uh on that year and just the the war stories that came out of it for sure. But it's so cool. Cause when you speak with people who were in that inaugural year, it's like such like a awesome memory, even though in the moment it was chaotic, right? Like yeah. people still bond over that, which is super cool. So it's awesome. You're getting like another inaugural experience coming into the divide, which is super cool. Uh, I'm sure like there's a question you get a lot, but I know I'd be probably getting, you know, yelled at from my listeners if I didn't ask this, but how do you recover with such like a short window between the races? And even so we were talking beforehand, wasn't a century ride, but you also did pump out a 93 mile bike ride, like in the process. Like I was like, what? This is crazy. So how do you, I guess is, is high mileage, like on a bike, like the key to recovery. Like I'm, I'm curious, like how do you approach getting your body ready for another 200 so quickly? Yeah, um, I wouldn't say that was necessarily the smartest idea, but I definitely uh, did it. Um, You know, back when the Triple Crown was a lot closer together, I've done Bigfoot and Tahoe back to back before with and the races used to be about this, like what divide is to Bigfoot, like three and a half weeks between. So it's not something I've never done. Um, And yeah, you know, I just took a full week off. You know, I always get start to get antsy at the end because you're just like sick of sitting around and not doing anything. And uh, so I got a little little overexcited when I was like, I'm going to do a week of bike riding and then hop on your bike and plan out a route and you're like 90 plus miles in and you're like, well, that might have not been the smartest idea, but it was a fun day. And uh yeah, I found, you know, I start, I picked up biking last year um, after Tahoe when I, I actually had some serious ankle issues mm. and uh, couldn't do much running at all. And so I started biking and I've just found that it it's like a nice change up. And so I try to do one day of biking a week during training. And I just I love it because I, you know, with running, it's always so focused on training and heart rate and I'm trying to be dialed in, but I'm, I get on a bike and I'm just like, I don't care who passes me up this mountain. You know, I'm just on my gravel bike going up, you know, climbing mountains and stuff. So I'm not concerned with pace or anything. And it's just like a fun adventure to get out there and kind of plan different routes and go to different towns. And, uh, it, taking that time to like not worry about 
training and, and just getting out there on a bike and kind of exploring kind of helps me recover in my mindset where you're mm. just like kind of gets you to enjoy the the like nature and just being out and about and doing something fun and so I think mentally for recovery actually biking has been pretty good for me um, but I'm just starting to get back into running this week so a week off a week of biking and now I'm back to running so that's awesome. And I love how you touch on the mental recovery, right? Because we, we think of recovery as, or I should say the inclination is always just physical, right? Like physical recovery, letting your body recover. But yeah, to your point, like sometimes just the mental thing of just even the act of running or maybe the competitiveness or anything like that, like that is also something that needs to recover from time to time. I know for me, like there's been times where I've done like tons of races in a row and like you just go from training block to training block and you're just like, oh, like at least for me, like I was like, oh my gosh, like this is... I'm not just feeling stoked about this. Like I'm just kind of feeling like I'm on the gas all the time. And so it's cool to just have those moments. Like you said, like just being on a bike, enjoying it for enjoying it and just kind of going through to have that mental reset to, you know, have those competitive juices flowing again, ready to go on race day, which is super, super cool. Yeah. I definitely think, yeah, that mental burnout you can get from just racing all the time is a real thing. Like, you definitely need to get a break and from that, like always focused on performance and winning. And so like whatever, you, whatever it is for each person where you can kind of have that space to breathe a little bit and just get back to like remembering why you enjoy being out there and being able to really just embrace that, you know, whether it's, you know, kayaking or paddleboarding or biking or even hiking or, you know, whatever it is that, kind of makes you excited to get out there again and maybe like you know taking that time off so that when you do get back to running you're like excited like oh I get to run again you know I haven't run in two weeks and so now I get to go out there again and I'm excited instead of like dreading it you never want to be like dreading it when you have another race coming up and you're trying to recover because if you're dreading the training then you're probably going to be dreading it going into the race and that's a really bad place to start off mentally especially at a race like a 200. <laughs> right. I was just about to say like, especially, yeah, cause it is such like a long thing. And so it's not just like a, you know, 10 K or a, a marathon where it's going to be over in a few hours. Like you're out there for days. And so it's like, if you're not getting stoked during training, like boy, race day could be a very, very long day, both mentally and potentially just even time on feet as well by moving slower from it. Yeah. And like the two, so I, I do have two drops at, at 200s both for very different reasons but you know both of those races going in neither of them I really wanted to do you know mm. so that's never a good a good sign to be going into a race thinking like I really don't want to do this like it's almost certain that you will end up not finishing mm -hmm. so it's just yeah. not a good headspace to be in and you know maybe if you're in that headspace maybe you know if you can like if you defer or something or just wait for the right time because it's probably not going to be a great experience. Such a good point. And I think it takes like a lot of that, like just strength to, to do that, to just say, Hey, like this is maybe just not something I'm stoked about. And, you know, it, something to walk away because, you know, the ultra community can lean on just like, Oh, just do it anyways and show up. But to your point, it's like, Hey, if you're not ready for it, you're not feeling great. Like, you know, maybe it isn't the kind of best thing. Like, even so, like, I remember you were saying with Cocodona, it was kind of like, oh, should I do this kind of or not? And kind of took some, like, things to to really assess those things. Was it the same kind of thing with Cocodona this year for you? Because I know you mentioned a little sick beforehand and everything like that. Was it the same kind of just weighing those things out for you on that? Yeah, I definitely waited a long time to sign up just because I wasn't sure if I'd be mm. – in the mental space for it and also in the physical recovery enough from it. I, I got sick multiple times. I didn't have a great mm -hmm. training block for that, but, and I actually got into Western States this year, um, oh, which I was no not way. expecting. Well, no I had two tickets in the lottery and I got in and like all my friends are like, you know, seven, eight years in. And I was like, Oh, you know, I'll start getting my tickets in so <laughs> I can do it in like eight years. And then this year I like got in and I was, so I was actually weighing, like, should I do Cocodona or Western? And I wasn't really excited about Western, and I had not been planning on doing it this year. So as it got closer, I was just like, I really don't want to do Western, and I do want to do Cocodona. And so that's another reason why I waited so long was just kind of weighing that out. And so I dropped out of Western, and I'm, I mean, 
you know, when it's a choice between a 200 plus mile race and a hundred mile race, it's, you know, usually the 200 will win out with me. <laughs> so it wasn't that hard of a decision, but definitely uh, took a moment to decide for sure. Well, first of all, I definitely need your luck with two tickets to get in there, like for sure. Like, cause I know there's a lot of people with like, you know, a million tickets who, uh, so definitely need your luck. But I want to say like, I respect your like decision to look at the things that you, are important to you and the things that get you excited specifically and choosing it over because people can look at a race like Western States and be like, Oh, like I got this opportunity and everything like that. And you know, it's a race that everyone wants to do, but you said, Hey, it's an easy choice for me. Cause I know I like the two hundreds. And I think that's just so, so cool. Cause it shows that, you know, you stay aligned to your truth, like what you like, what enjoys like you know, uh, fills your cup up when you're racing too. And I think it even just shows just on your performance and how you have the enjoyment out there, which is super cool. So I, I gotta say, I respect that so much. And I think that's something people could get a lot of benefit from is just like, listen to their heart and not, you know, what people should do, whether it is, you know, Western States or UTMB, like if it doesn't excite you, like, but it excites other people, like go with what excites you and make the decision on that. So just want to say, I respect that so, so much. Yeah, I mean, it definitely leads to a better race, but I must admit, um, you know, I, I have what it's been like six years plus I've been trying to get into hard rock. So I don't have all the luck, <laughs> but uh, that one's been eluding uh, me. So maybe in another uh, three years, I'll be able to get into that one. <laughs> is that like but, a, is that a big like focus? Like, is that a dream race for you? Like when if you got in, would you be like, yeah, right away, like for sure? Or, like, what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I for hundreds, I definitely am more drawn to like some of the harder ones, like the more gnarly races, right? And so Hard Rock's definitely high on my list. Uh, I'll definitely run it the year I get in, whichever year that happens to be. <laughs> um, otherwise, like, yeah, there are some other races. Like, there's not a ton of hundreds I like that are on my list to do, but there are a couple. I, you know, like URA out in Colorado mm. is a very gnarly race. That's definitely on the list, too. Um, but yeah, any of the, you know, the time cut off less like the 30 hour time cut off and more like the 40 plus hour cut off, you know, those are the kind of races. And yeah, just because, you know, a race, like, obviously if you want to, like everyone wants to do Western cause it's such an amazing experience and you know, the community out there for that race is so strong and you know, all the pros go out. So it's, just, I know it's super exciting, but I would definitely, you know, don't, you don't want to do things just because everyone else is doing them. You want to do what you find what you enjoy and do that. You know, if you find you really enjoy like flat looped courses, like it doesn't matter if people are like, Oh, that's so boring. Why would you do that? Like you should do a mountain race. Like if that's what you're excited about, then just, you know, do that. And don't, don't worry about what other people, you know, are telling you, you should do for sure. Like find what you like and stick with that. Hell yeah. I love that message so, so much because yeah, those are the things that we're going to enjoy a lot more. And I think now like where opinions are a dime a dozen with social media and the internet and everything like that, it can be easy to just get sucked into the FOMO or other people's thing of like, Oh, you should do that. Or to, even like for me, like I've always wanted to do like desert solstice, like the track loop thing. And the amount of times that I get, why the heck would you ever want to do that? It's a track, but I'm like, man, like, that just excites the hell out of me. Like it's a, uh, it's one of those things where it's like, if it excites you, just go for it. So I love that message. That was such a great point on there too. And so many great, just amazing points in this conversation. This has been one of my favorites I've had in a long time. So Mika, like seriously, thank you so much for coming on and just being so awesome. And for anyone listening here to follow along with Mika, I'll put a link to her Instagram and Strava in the show notes as well. Um, like I said, your Strava is like one of my favorite followers for sure. Um, just you put in some awesome work out there, which is super, super cool. So highly suggest anyone follow Mika here. Um, but Mika, for my last Last question on the podcast that I ask all my guests on the show. The show is called Everyday Ultra, and the ethos of the show is helping uh, our listeners be better endurance athletes every day. So, my question to you, Mika, is what can our listeners do every single day to be a better endurance athlete? So, well, this actually might come out of left field a little bit just because we haven't touched it. on it at all. Left field. But um, one thing that I found has really helped me this year is just doing some mobility work mm. and just, um, 
because I think, you know, we get so stuck in like just running, running, running. And, you know, especially if you have, you know, you have a weak spot. Like I, you know, have always had ankle issues and just doing some ankle mobility every week has been like really helpful for me this year. And that's like, you know, you could do like, you know, 10 minutes, two or three times a week, and that could be super helpful. So I think for, you know, um, maybe a little less, a little less endurance focus, but I think um, runners can easily put off strength work and mobility work. And I think just, you know, 10, 20 minutes a week could even be helpful for most people, especially when you know you have a weakness in one spot or another. <laughs> I love that. It's such a good, yeah. And you, you said it right on the head, usually a lot of times when I ask this question is like the endurance focus, but like to talk on like the mobility is equally important, if not even more important, right? Because if you're not healthy or your body's not functioning in the right way, like it can be detrimental for you. Like, is it, is it like 15, 20 minutes a week? Do you spend a little bit more time or like what, what's yeah, like I spend, protocol? Yeah. I spend more time. I mean, I do, um, like at least an hour and a half on my off days of like yoga and wow. mobility work and then probably an extra like half hour throughout the week. So like maybe two hours a week, but um, even just making time for like a half hour in a week, I think is, can be really helpful, especially like when you know you have a spot to work on because like for me, it's always been my ankles. And so just focusing on making sure I'm doing ankle work two, three times a week, I had no ankle issues at Bigfoot, which was like the first time in like years for me where I haven't like had a really bad ankle turn during a race. So that's incredible. Yeah. Wow. That's (laughs) awesome to see like all the years and then just like implementing just some mobility work and putting that in and being diligent with it can lead to no issues on something that's historically been an issue. So that's awesome. I know I would be scheduling mobility time for even myself this week. Now uh, I've been having some hip stuff. So I think uh, we need to get some hip mobility in and you've inspired me to do so. And uh, I'm sure uh, other listeners are also scheduling in some mobility as well. But Mika, this has been such an amazing conversation, like super grateful to have you uh, on the show today and wishing you all the best wishes for the divide coming up here real soon. And uh, super grateful for you coming on the show. Thanks again, my friend. Yeah, thanks so much. It was great to be on. Uh, it's very exciting to uh, get to be on such an awesome podcast. So thanks for having me. Uh, thank you so much for listening to the Everyday Ultra Podcast. I appreciate you taking the time to do so. And if you absolutely love the show and want to support us in any ways, there's a few ways that you can do so. The first way is writing us a review on the platform of your choice. Reviews really, really matter and they help us to spread the word a lot more. So if you have the time to do so, would love that as well. Number two, you can join our Patreon community. Patreon helps us to support the show and helps us to grow and invest into new developments and growth. And on top of that, just for about $5 a month, you can get access to monthly calls with me where you can ask me anything on a monthly basis, connect with other members in the Everyday Ultra community, and ultimately get early access episodes without ads as well, which is super, super cool, all for about $5 a month. So that's a great way to support us. And then number three is taking care of our sponsors on here. So as you heard in the beginning of the podcast, uh, we had some sponsors in here. And if you want to invest into their product and uh, go try them out, they're all products that I try either in my training and I live by. I don't take any sponsorships from anybody I don't incorporate in my training. So uh, feel free to take advantage of their product and tell them that Joe sent you from Everyday Ultra. Those are three ways to support the podcast, but no matter which way that you choose or if you don't choose a way at all, just know that I really appreciate you for listening in. I know there's tons of podcasts out there and the fact that you're listening to us, that really, really means a lot. All right, everyone, thank you so much for listening. And remember, become a better endurance athlete every day. And we'll see you real soon. Take care.